We're taking our Bibles for our Bible study this evening. We're headed over to 1 John. 1 John chapter 5 as we get started. If you did not get the notes, then feel free to stand, get up, go to the back and grab those. There's only a, a few different sentences that we we'll want you to record, like 13 of them, on the front and the back. But we wanted to continue in a series that we started. Uh, part of that, getting a grip. That idea of, okay, what are some areas that we struggle with? And a lot of believers struggle with this idea of, okay, I prayed, I asked Jesus to be my Savior when I was a child, when I was a teenager. But then after a period of time, they begin to wonder, did I understand? Did I say it right? Am I really saved? And this happens to a lot of people. It happens to people who, like myself, I never heard the gospel at all until I was 16 years of age, had no idea about it, and so I responded to it. But as I started learning more, I would hear preachers say, well, you know, this is what you did when you got saved. You should have understood this, this, this. And I didn't understand all of what they were saying. And so then I started doubting, was I really saved? Did I really understand? Did I say the right words? So that happens to a lot of people, often, way too often. In fact, it happens to a lot of people in our region. We've ministered over the years that we, since we've been here, since 1979 when we uh, started the church here, we've ministered to a number of people who have come, and they've come from different areas, different churches, that in this area they struggle because they were told nobody can ever know for sure. Their church is taught that there's the possibility that you could lose your salvation if you did something wrong, if you stop following. Uh, we've dealt with some, several people that were told if you stop wearing certain garments, if you start driving certain vehicles, if you start wearing certain cl- color, uh, colors of clothing, if you start drinking certain you know, caffeine products, then you'll lose your salvation. So that creates doubts for some people, which is a horrible situation. Then there are some who, like myself and many of you here, who had the struggles. You were sensitive to the Spirit of God. You didn't want to sin. You, you prayed. You wanted to get over not only the penalty, but you wanted to have victory over the power of sin. But that didn't come right away in some areas. And if you were like me, you struggled and said, Lord, how could I keep on using your name in vain? I didn't intend to, but I lost my temper. I swore. I cussed again. That's something that, I, that I, I've asked you to forgive me of, but I'm doing it. Maybe, maybe God, you know, I, I'm not going to be, go to heaven because I still haven't grown or changed. And it, maybe it didn't take. And so that causes some doubts. There's also this, that, that his created doubts. There's a lot of times that even believers, people who profess Christ as a youngster, who started living for the Lord, then over a period of time, all of a sudden they get away from living for the Lord. And others within the church, outside the church, go and say, how can that person who has a child made a profession, but now here they are as an adult, they're living in immorality. They're doing something terrible. They want nothing to do with the Lord at all. But they prayed when they were little. Can they possibly still be saved? What's going on? How can, how can it be? You know, how can they, they go to heaven and they live this way? Well, there's an easiest explanation that is given is, well, probably they lost it. Probably their salvation was taken away. And many people, many churches respond that way based upon the lack of faithfulness in some of the people that they've ministered to. Then their response is, well, they probably lost salvation. Is that a biblical possibility? And so we come to that. We come to this other idea that we've talked about the last two weeks. Sometimes there are some passages that challenge Okay, that we'll look at. But here's where we're at. Here's the struggle we are. When we say, okay, what about that believer who isn't living for the Lord, but they were a child, but now they're older? How, you know, are they saved? Aren't they? The, the bottom line is, we don't know who's saved. 
We don't know who isn't saved. The only person that you really know about is yourself. And then we take everybody by their word. So he's writing in 1 John, and he's writing to people who are struggling to say, am I or aren't I? And they have some big struggles because they're facing life and death persecution. They're in Ephesus and other churches in the New Testament era, and they want to be sure. And then some of the people within the church that, uh, that John is writing to, some of them have denied Jesus because they had to choose whether they would live or whether they would die as a martyr. And so, you know, the question is, were they saved, weren't they? Number one, we don't know. We don't know about other people. Sometimes we don't know about ourselves, so that's why some of us struggled. We don't know. But we look at it and say, okay, you know, as one, uh, one preacher, and several of you pointed this out, one preacher said, when we get to heaven, we're going to be very surprised. Surprised by... Who is there that we didn't expect and who's not there that we expected to be there? So there could be that surprise. All we can do is take people by the word and consistent lifestyle, and even then it's hard to know for sure. Because let me throw this to you, and I'm not trying to create even more doubt, but I'm trying to just put it all in a perspective and take it all in, 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 a, in a complementary sense. Is it possible for some people to join in a group of Christians, become a part of a church, do a Bible study, and not really be saved. Is that possible? That somebody could have an interest in the Bible, but really not be born again? Okay, okay. Is it possible that somebody could claim, I got saved, and then they really never were? That they made a profession, but they really didn't repent? Is that a possibility? Okay. Is it possible that somebody could do spiritual deeds, even like casting out demons in the New Testament era, and even sharing the gospel and not be saved? Is that possible? Okay, if we go back to the Bible, we know it is. Okay, do you remember this character we're trying to picture? Okay, Judas, he was one of a group. He was one of the 12, okay? And so we know that he's a follower of Jesus. He's hearing. He's learning. He's, only, he's also picked amongst the twelve as being the treasurer, one of the leaders of the group. We know as well that he had the ability, because it says when he sent the twelve out, and then when he sent the seventy out, they all came back and they said that we have done these great deeds. We cast out demons. How is it possible that an unsaved person could cast out demons? That's a whole other discussion, but it even shows up in the book of Acts when we get to there in the springtime. He listened to Jesus over and over again, Okay, um, And as well, we know that he, Jesus, describes him as not a real believer. He says, one of you is the devil. Jesus made comment that he's the son of perdition. Jesus said it was better for him not to have been born than to suffer what he's going to suffer. An unbeliever, but close to Christ. And God knew he, who, what his situation was. And God used his situation so as to bring about the plan of God in bringing Christ to the cross. But there is an example of somebody who is closely associated with a group of believers and with Jesus personally, but he really wasn't a professor. He really didn't believe it. But he was going for the ride. He had some idea of a benefit. Do you remember what Jesus is going to say at the judgment day? Jesus is going to say when people are gathered there who say to him, Lord, Lord, have we not done? And they're going to list things. We Did we not prophesy, cast out demons, did many wonderful works? But he's going to declare unto them, depart from me, you workers of your own will, because I never knew you. There wasn't a personal relationship. Now, if you look at this, they call Jesus Lord. You look at this, they pray to him. 
you look at this, they did religious deeds. Are there people who are doing religious deeds but not truly believers in Christ? Are there denominations filled with good people who are doing that Sunday after Sunday? The answer is yes. Yes. So did they recognize that he had power? Sure. I grew up in a church that did not preach the gospel, but they preached that God has power. And the way that you could experience his power and his mercy was through the church. But they didn't preach the gospel, and yet they recognized who Jesus was. They recognized the fact that Jesus was the Son of God. And we would say that every Sunday in the Apostles' Creed, that we would be a part of the Mass that we were celebrating. And so these people are people who will be religious, involved with Christianity, be a part of Christendom as a broad sense. But what do they lack? They lack a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And so we know that that's possible biblically. And so we look at and say, okay, then what's the what about the person who prayed before or said they were a part of this group? Now they are gone off. They're living in sin. Did they lose their salvation? There's two possibilities here that from, the, from a Bible point of view that's consistent. They, one, never really were saved. They were one of those people we just described that were associated with it. Maybe they're like Simon Magnus that comes out of Acts chapter 8 who went along for the ride. He wanted the benefit of Christianity. It was novel. It was new. He wanted to do things. I mean, we've, we've had people show up here. I remember one that comes to the top of my head. We had a guy who was definitely wanted to become a our church. He wanted to get involved. He sold vacuums on the side. And as soon as he was able to get here and make his pitch and go through the directory, he was gone. Okay. Are there people that that's why they're drawn to a, an assembly for personal profit? That's a possibility. Okay. And so maybe they're like Simon Magnus. He wanted the benefit, the power, but he didn't understand. It was still all about him. And so obviously those people don't have the power, they don't have the purpose that's put in, this, in the heart by the Spirit of God. And so they, maybe they followed along. Maybe they wanted to fit in. They wanted to please mom and dad, please grandma and grandpa. They wanted to please the Sunday school teacher. Their friend was doing it. So the other kids at camp were doing it. So they just went along, but it wasn't a genuine desire. Okay, again, we don't know, but that's a possibility. The other possibility is they truly did get saved, but... But we have this op- options. They could still be babes. They could still be carnal. They could be what the, some of the Corinthians were described. They're left in the cradle. They've never been taught. They've never been discipled. They've never grown. They've never gotten under the word of God. And they are not spiritual people. They are carnal. And you, they are some of them even living within the midst. There was a man who was shacking up him with him in an immoral situation in 1 Corinthians 5 with his stepmother or mother in an incestuous relationship. And Paul says he's a brother. Is that here he was, one who claimed to be a brother. So there's that possibility that he just never grew deeply in backslidden. In fact, some it says with the, with the sower and the seed that some are drawn away by the cares of the world. And the bottom line is if they were truly a believer... One of the signs of being a true believer, they cannot continue in that lifestyle with joy and peace. It won't can be consistent because there's going to be the chastening hand of God. I don't know. You don't know. That's why in the scriptures he tells us and challenges us that we should examine ourselves whether we be in the faith to make sure that between us and God, we are confident. And then he gives those things we talked about in First John, all those signs that we preached on two weeks ago. How do you, can you tell by the word of God that you have 
the Spirit of God genuinely in you, and are you showing those, those growing signs of real faith? But once you've prayed and asked Christ to be your Savior, you did it, they did it, and it was genuine, can they ever lose their salvation? Does God ever pluck it from them? And the answer is no, because consistently the Bible tells us. Now, some will point out there are verses that talk about, that are rare, but they talk about the idea that maybe they might suggest that you could lose it, that God might disqualify somebody, that they uh, will become entangled and it's going to be worse for them. There are those verses, and they are confusing verses. But the clarity of the bulk of Scripture is just so obvious. That's why he writes, We've written these things unto you that you may know that you have eternal life. And so the verses that are rare that might suggest it, how do they compare to the bulk of Scripture? Well, what we're doing is we're taking a bulk of Scripture, multiple passages, combining them together, and coming up with what does the Bible clearly say? And then we would have to look at those, those rare verses in light of what the Bible clearly says. So what does the preponderance of the Bible clearly give us? It tells us that if you call upon Christ and you're genuine, you called upon Christ as your Savior with the knowledge that you had, you, re, you repented, okay, however that looks in your life, you asked Jesus to be your Savior, then whosoever called upon the name of the Lord, if you did that, then what did God promise he would do for you? For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord. Okay, so how long are you saved? Well, we're we're saying you're saved forever and ever after that because, number one, the Bible teaches salvation is something done by God for us, not by us. Number two, the Bible clearly teaches, and there's lots of verses that explain this. We've had two weeks of studying it already. The Bible clearly teaches when you got saved, you were placed in Christ. A unique relationship, a protecting relationship. Again, two weeks of study has already talked about that. Number three, the Bible clearly teaches that when you get born again, John chapter 1, as many as believed on him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. You were put into a relationship as a child of God. How long is the parent-child relationship? forever, okay? The Bible repeatedly says that the gift God gave you was the gift of eternal life. Eternal life means forever, okay? This is another statement. God is the one that keeps us saved, not us. And we pointed out multiple verses where he says, my father is greater than all. He puts us in his hand. No one, and he says it twice, no man can pluck us out of the father's hand. We are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Number six, we've made this statement, that when we get born again, based on 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, when we get born again, the Holy Spirit comes within us, indwells us. That process is, as we'll see when we get into our series on Acts after the missions conference, that is called the idea of the baptism of the Spirit. First time it happens, Acts chapter 2, and we'll look at it then more in depth. But the Holy Spirit moves into your body. When the Holy Spirit moves into your body, 
He not only moves there just to help you and to guide you and to teach you in all things, but he's there as God's promise, as God, we said, as God's down payment, as God's engagement ring, promissory note to you. That's the word Erebon. We talked about this at last at length last week, that you have God's spirit of promise until the day of redemption. Until the day that he takes you to heaven. He seals us. We talked about what sealing does. It protects. It secures. We talked about the idea that this spirit Jesus predicted would come upon us and be in us forever and ever dwelling within us. And since he's in us, if God were to reject us physically, personally, he would have to reject himself, deny his own self. That's an impossibility according to 2 Timothy 2. And then we made this observation that even the believers in Corinth who are called babes, who are called that, that are carnal at times, they had the Spirit of God. What know ye not that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit? So in chapter 3, verse 1, he calls them babes, but in chapter 3, verse 6, he says that you have the Holy Spirit dwelling within you. Number 7, we can never be separated from the love of God. What, what can separate us from the love of God? He says nothing, neither height nor depth nor death. He goes on, he talks about things present, things past, nothing, no creature no spiritual being, not even you, can separate from the saving love of Jesus Christ. Number eight, the Bible teaches that once we are a believer, God, it says, will never condemn us. We have passed from death into life. He's made that point that he that believes shall not come into condemnation. Him that comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. There is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. So he's made it abundantly clear. No condemnation to those who call upon Christ. Number nine, even the backslidden believers, the ones who are not living for the Lord the way they ought, they are still referred to as brethren or as believers. They aren't all of a sudden said to be lost or now unsaved or the ones who are outsiders. The passages we showed you last week, he's writing to those who are in Corinth, those who are called saints, holy ones, like everyone who calls upon the name of Christ. I, brethren, could not speak unto you as spiritual, but you're carnal. But he still calls them brethren. They're still within the family. They're still related to them. Moreover, if a brother trespasses against thee, so somebody can sin against you, that doesn't mean they lose their salvation. They're still a brother. We pointed out the fact that if we say, you and I, we have no sin, which means we still struggle with sin, and we will until the day we get to heaven. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth is not within us. But if we confess our sin, God is faithful. And he goes on after he has said that, and what does he call us? Little children. Even to the people he's writing who are not perfect, they are not as consistent as what he wished they were, who are still struggling in areas, who he has to say in 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, remember what it says, blank not the world. Love not the world. It literally says to, the, to them, stop loving the world, which means that they had an attraction to it. And yet he calls them brethren. And so we read this. Now we command you, brethren, in the name of the Lord Jesus, withdraw yourselves. Is it possible that some true believer may walk disorderly? That they may do something wrong? The answer is yes, but they're still a brother. Could they even get into some goofy doctrine? Yes, that's a possibility. And so he warns about that. He writes this. He says, I write unto you, and this one's a tough one. 
I write unto you that if any man that is called a brother be a fornicator, what do, you, what do I have to do to judge them that are without? We don't judge the people on the outside. But they're a part of our body. We need to judge those within, those in our family, church family, and deal with them, confront them, challenge them, as long as they're a brother. We don't go and deal with the world outside. We deal with the folk inside. But he still calls them a brother who's living in such a situation. We stopped right here last week, and I wanted to just make an observation. Believers that you and I know well, they failed the Lord. They did things that were awful. He lies about his wife twice so that his wife ends up in somebody else's harem. Twice he does that to Abimelech and then also to the Pharaoh of Egypt. And yet what we read about Abraham who did that, he's called the friend of God. He didn't lose his salvation, but he was still in that relationship with God. Peter, what did Peter do that all of us find so heinous? He denied Christ three times. Okay, three times. Did he know better? Did he know he was even under this possibility? Oh, yeah, and he still blows it. And then, when he, and then afterwards, he goes back a-fishing. And what is Jesus comes to him and still says, Hey, I want you to feed my lambs, feed my sheep, shepherd my, my lambs. And so he didn't un, just unrelate to him. Jesus still deals with him, brings him back. John the Baptist. Did John the Baptist ever struggle with who Jesus was? Okay, remember he said, Behold the Lamb of God which takes away the sins of the world. I am not worthy to do what? Tie his shoes, deal with them. And yet later on when John is in prison, what does John send to Jesus? Yeah, he sends two of his disciples say, Are you the real one? Are you the one we were looking for? And Jesus says to, the, to the, his two disciples, go back and show John all the things that are doing, like the miracles and all those things. Then Jesus, right after those disciples take off, Jesus turns to the crowd and he said, what did you go out to see in the wilderness? And he says, I say unto you, there is not... And he talks about John the Baptist compared to everybody else. There's none greater than John the Baptist. Even though John the Baptist had this lack of, of confidence of just, you know, secure faith while he is undergoing some trials. Jesus Christ just says he's still just an outstanding individual. We have Moses. Did he ever lose his temper? Several times. But the one time he broke the tablets. What did God do with him after he broke the tablets? Calls him back up onto the mountain and rewrites the tablets. And while he comes down, his face is aglow. You have those instances where God did not totally reject, but God is going to work with them. Which brings us to this thought, is very critical, is when the true believer is, is disobeying, there's going to be chastisement. There's going to be chasing. There's going to be God spanks. I know that's the wrong term to use in this modern society, Okay. But there's going to be the spiritual discipline that God will mete out. He disciplines. He doesn't damn the individual. He chastens. He doesn't condemn them. There is such clear scripture on this point. In fact, let's do this one. Hebrews chapter 12. It's an extended passage. I'm just using one of the multiple versions that are, that are possible. But he's writing unto the Hebrew people, and he's writing, says, Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as children of God? He says, My son, do not regard lightly, and he's quoting from previous scripture, Do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when God is reproving you. Okay? For the Lord discipline disciplines the ones that he loves and chastens every son that he receives. 
That's his point. Now, society is different. Some of you grew up and you'd say, hey, when we were kids, you know, if I did something wrong, the neighbor might even discipline me. And then when I got home, yeah, I got even worse, the discipline. Okay, in, in Bible times, the thought that Jesus or God is doing in this passage is, whose kids would you correct, typically? Your own. Your own. And so he's using this as an illustration to say, okay, one of the ways to know whether you're one of God's kids is, does God correct you? If God doesn't correct you, you're not his kid. Okay, but whom he, here's his point, whom he loves, the son that he receives, he's going to correct. He's going to discipline. Don't reject that. Don't get tired of it. God is trying to help you, to grow you. It is for discipline that you have to endure. It's a good thing for us. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all of you have participated, then you, if there's no discipline, you're an illegitimate child. In other words, you don't belong to God. One of the proofs that you have is, am I a child of God, is what happens when you sin? Is there conviction? Is there chastening? Is there that guilt factor? That comes from the Holy Spirit. It comes from God Almighty that's dealing with you. And he goes on, and this is, this is a really interesting text. We read this most every month when we do communion, where he's talking about, he says, those who took communion wrong, that some of them are being disciplined because they took communion wrong. For this cause, many are weak and sickly among you, and many have even died. Okay, watch what he says further on. When we are judged... We are chastened, that is, by another. We are chastened by the Lord so that we would not be condemned with the world. What's he saying? The chastisement is what's going to happen, but not the condemnation. God chastens us. He's not going to condemn us. How clear can it be? How clear can it, can it be? Now, here, here's one for you. This is talking about when we get to heaven. Okay, what happens in heaven? He says, if any man build upon the foundation, that's your life, your service for Christ, gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, every man's work shall be made manifest because God's going to put it to a fiery test. And the fiery test is going to reveal what did you learn, did you do? How was your service for Christ? If it's wood, hay, stubble, it was all done for yourself and for show what's going to happen. Burns up, nothing left. But if it's made of precious stones, you served, you taught, you sacrificed for the glory of Christ, you're going to have something left over. And what's he going to give you if you have things left over? What did we talk about in Sunday school this morning? He's going to give us crowns, okay? He's going to reward that. You shall receive a reward. Now, what's interesting is the next phrase that comes up. He says, but if any man's work shall totally be burned. Now, this guy's there, okay? He's a believer. He's in heaven. He will suffer loss. What's the loss? Get out of heaven. You're not, you don't belong here. Is that the loss? Next phrase. He himself shall be saved, yet... Yeah, yeah, as by fire. Basically, by the skin of your teeth. Whatever phrase you want to use there. They don't lose their salvation. They may have nothing that they've done for the Lord, but if they were a genuine believer in Christ and they get to heaven when it comes to the, the bema seat of Jesus Christ, they may not have a single reward. They may not hear a well done, thou good and faithful servant, but they are saved, yet so as by fire. Though they have loss of reward, loss of, condemna- of commendation, they will not suffer condemnation. 
So the scriptures makes it very clear that if you're God's child, you don't lose the privilege of a relationship of being God's child. You may lose reward. You will suffer chastisement, but you're still his child. Let's go go to another thought here, okay? Number 11, the Bible clearly teaches God will remain faithful even when we aren't faithful. What happens to an individual who really struggles? Okay, let's do Peter. Let's pick Peter. Okay, let's do a modern-day Peter. That they're living in a country like we've heard this week. We've heard of some people responding to the gospel in Central Asia that got saved. Because they got saved, we were asked to pray for them. Those of you who are part of that adopt a missionary, you probably got some notices that some people have got saved through some of the ministries being done. And they say, pray for them because they are probably going to be persecuted. They're going to lose their job. Their family's going to put them out. Their, their life could be threatened. The woman who just got saved in the last couple of weeks, her husband could beat her, and if he beat her to death because of it, he, it would be fine in that culture and country where they live. So you're a believer living in that area. You're growing in Christ, but all of a sudden you're found out. You're one of those who is gathering. And you're meeting, and all of a sudden the police come in. And the police haul you to jail. And they say to you, deny Jesus or we will take your kids away from you. Would there be a temptation, in the, in the, in a, a genuine temptation to think, what should I do? Would there be a hesitation on your part to say, See, we're all spiritual right now. Okay. But if we were in that, that would be challenging, yay, nay? Okay, that you have to decide. And we all want to be we all want to be make the heroic decision. But have believers succumb to that type of temptation? All through church history. All through church history, there's a whole period of time. It's, there's a group that's called the Donatists from around the two, three hundreds. And that was the big issue, is they had some people within the church, and also when the emperor's troops would come in, they would, they would bring them before the sun god, idol, and they would say, make a sacrifice to the sun god, and we'll let you live. Well, there in their mind justified it by saying, I'll make a sacrifice to the... S-O-N God instead of the S-U-N God. And so some would succumb to that. But in their mind, they're justifying by saying, in my mind, I'm really worshiping the Son of God, not the sun in the, in the sky. And so afterwards, what happened when that persecution stopped amongst the Donatists is there was a big debate. What do we do? Okay, Mike, I'm going to pick you since you're sitting there. And you denied... You and Michelle denied so that you and your kids survived. Should we let them worship with us again? And there was, in the churches of that time, the big debate, no. They have lapsed. They were called the lapsi. They lapsed in their faith. They should not be allowed because we were holy and faithful. They weren't. They're second class. Well, that became a big debate in church history. What do you do with the lapsi? compared to the rest, because some of you may have actually suffered loss of family members. And so it became a big, big debate. What about, did they lose their salvation? Because they denied the Lord. And so that had to be answered, and it was discussed. And one of the passages that was used is this passage that we're talking about. This passage that's going to come from Second Timothy, where it talks about the Lord remaining faithful to those who are not faithful to him. It says in 2 Timothy 2, verse 12, If we believe not, 
yet he abides faithful, he cannot deny himself. I'm using the King James translation. The phrasing is that believe not is the same word as believe not and the same idea uh, that's used. Believe and faith come from the same word in the original language. They're both belt, uh, del, uh, developed across from the word pistis. And so if we stop doing the pistis, then he remains pistis faithful, okay, that he cannot deny himself. And so there's the play on the words there. But the bottom line is, what happens if they who were genuine believers, they succumb to persecution? Does God take away their salvation? Not according to this passage. Not according to this passage. Is it, is it terrible that they succumbed? Yes. Do we advocate? Do we say, hey, good for you? No. Are we glad that Peter denied? No. No. But it's, it, it's dealing with real life for some people. And so we have this passage that talks about God being faithful. Because sometimes we lapsi in just everyday living in being faithful in our purity, faithful in our family. If we confess our sins, he is faithful, okay? That he is still reliable even in that regard. So we get to the text right after that First John 1, 8 and 9 about he is faithful, and it says this, my little children, right after he's talked to, if we deny that we sin, we lie. So he's talking to the believers saying we still struggle. But if we struggle, he is faithful and just to forgive us. And my little children, know this, these things write unto you, that you would not keep on living in sin, doing it over and over and over again. If any man sins, what do we have? This is just a tremendous doctrine. What do we have? Do we have an attack from Jesus Christ? No. What does he do? He advocates for us. What is an advocate? Okay, it's a, a lawyer is an advocate. A defense attorney is your advocate. What do they do for you? They stick up for you. They stick up for you. So if we're, let's, let's portray, this is the throne, God is sitting here, and we're standing there, and we're guilty at, excuse the phrase, okay? We're as guilty as not. Okay, we're really guilty of something that we've done. What is Satan doing, according to Revelation 12? He's accusing us. He's saying we deserve to be damned or condemned. Who stands defending us? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. That's the picture he's portraying. Jesus is our advocate. And Jesus, and it's important he adds to it, what is Jesus? He is the, what's the description? The righteous one. The one who's got this all under control. Same thing shows up in Hebrews 7. Wherefore, he is able to save them to the utter... What does that mean? To save them to the uttermost. What does it mean? Uh, what's that? To whatever extent. Okay. Anybody else? Any other thought? What did you say? Somebody? From anything? Okay, the word that's used to the uttermost is this word, pantelis. It means to save completely to the end. That he is totally able to keep them, how long? Forever. Okay, so he's able to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him. Okay, once you come to him, he saves you. And how long is he able to keep you saved? To the pantelis. 
to the forever, forever. So if you are his, what does he do if you struggle? What's that? Seeing he ever lives to make intercession for us, to advocate for us. The bottom line, maybe this should have been a whole other point altogether. Jesus doesn't ever accuse or abandon us. Once we're his, his children, he never accuses or abandons us, but he promises to assist and to advocate for us. There is no condemnation. God does not deny. God remained. Christ remains faithful to us even when we aren't faithful. I got to say this. Now, maybe it's not you, but I got to say, oh, thank you, Jesus, for this one. Because I can point out time and time and time again in my life that I didn't remain faithful in my speech, in my attitude, in my driving, in my temper. And I'm probably the only one in this room who ever struggled in any of those areas, right? Yeah, right. Okay. But he remains faithful even when we don't. Wonderful, wonderful concept. Tremendous concept. Number 12. Jesus clearly advocates this idea that once you got saved, you're saved one time and forever and ever. It doesn't have to be done over and over and over. You know, we don't sing that song, you must be born again and again and again and again and again and again. My kids wouldn't understand this. My grandkids wouldn't. It sounds like a stuck record. They would have no clue what that meant. But you, some of you do. We're all in some soundtrack where it gets stuck on the same phrase. The, some churches are stuck on the fra- same phrase. You've got to get born again and born again and born again and born again. That's not true. The illustrations Jesus used are really interesting. He uses real-life illustrations to portray salvation with him. One of those that stands out as he does it is in John chapter 3. What is, what is the illustration he uses in John 3? If any man is not blank, he shall not see the kingdom of God. If any man is not blank, he shall enter into the kingdom of God. Born again. He uses that illustration of birth. Okay? And, so, and it's such a beautiful picture. Okay? When you talk about a child being born, how does this portray, how does Jesus say, this portrays you in a relationship with him? And how does that happen? Let, let me just preface this. Jesus has already pointed out that none of us are righteous, no, not one. Jesus has already pointed out we need to repent of our sins. Because how many have sinned? All have sinned and come short of the standard of the glory of God. Okay, so what do we do to get rid of that sin? One of the illustrations he uses is you need to get born again. And so when you look at it, you go, okay, this makes sense. Born again spiritually is like birth physically. The parent does the laboring, does the suffering in that aspect of the birthing process. The, the baby didn't do it. The child's a passive partner in it. But the child receives the life because of the mothers going through the labor and the pain. Jesus Christ did the laboring and the painting on the cross. Who gets the benefit of it? We do. That he paid our price so we could have life. So once the child is birthed, the child becomes a part of the family. This is the norm, okay? We know there's all these exceptional situations that are, that are strange and odd and sad. But we're talking in general truth. Once the child is born, born, you become part of a family. That birth takes place at a specific moment. The birth doesn't... The woman isn't birthing for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks and months and months and months 
Like some people say, hey, I, when I came to Jesus, it took me years and years and years to go through the birthing process. I don't think so. Okay, it's a momentary time, historical moment in your life. Just like there's a historical moment where you say as husband and wife, I take you, and you become one. There's a historical moment when you were born. It's on a birth record, a birth certificate. The same thing is true spiritually. There's a historical moment when you called upon Christ to be your Savior. When that happened, I don't know. For me, it was the middle of the month of May of 1973. Exactly what date, I don't remember, but I know it happened. Okay, and so it's a, not a lifelong process. The birthing, how many times did I have to be physically born? Once. How often did your kids have to be born? Once. How often did you have to go through the birthing process to be born, to be, have life? One time. So too, this idea of you becoming a child of God, one time. One time where you called upon Christ to be your Savior. He does the same thing when he's talking about drinking with water. And he's talking to the woman at the well, and he's using this idea of, okay, whoever drinks of the water that you can get out of this well at Samaria, he says they're going to drink over and over with the water, and they still will be thirsty. You know that's true. You probably drank something earlier today, yay? Did any of you drink something today? Are you getting thirsty? Okay, I am too. Okay, so you get thirsty, okay, but he says, and he makes it very clear with the verbs, with the, with the, in the original language, it is so clear. But if you drink of the water that I give you, one time you drink, not from a well or from a spring or from a bottle or a fountain over and over, but one time you drink from what I am giving you, you will never thirst again. The water that I shall give will be a well of water springing up within him. He does the same thing with food. After he's fed the thousands, he's talking about the meat that I give you. That the meat that I give you, the food I give you, is eternal. And he makes the contrast between the manna that was provided. That How often did manna come? Every day for the 40 years. Okay, Did Jesus fed the 4,000 in the wilderness? Were they ever going to eat after that? Sure they were. But as he makes the comparison, he says, hey, listen, labor not for the meat that perishes. But he goes on and talks about there is a certain meat that will endure certain food, certain something you need to take in that will be everlasting life, which the Son of Man shall give you. I am that living bread which came down from heaven. If any man just once takes me into their life. In other words, you spiritually eat Christ. Now, I'm not talking cannibalism, but you say, Jesus, come into my life. I want to possess you. I want you to be in me. If you do that one time, he shall live for how long? Forever, I'm that bread and I will give my flesh. He does that in John chapter 3. He refers to an illustration that you're familiar with. It's in the book of Numbers chapter 21. Remember, they had, they had been... Um, uh, rebelling against the Lord. So the Lord sends snakes into the camp. And as the poisonous snakes are going through the rebels in the camp, they're getting bit and they are dying. Okay, and so God tells Moses, you need to put up this pole, this brass pole, and you put a serpent, uh, you know, the design of a serpent in brass on the pole. Which, by the way, do we see this in medi medicine today, this symbol? Oh, all the time. And so he told them, how do you get healed if you get snake bit? You look at the post. For how long? What? Just look at it. Okay? And if they looked at it, then what would happen to them? 
They were healed. They were healed. But the healing only lasted for a minute. No. The healing lasted. And so his point is, the Son of Man will be lifted up in that same way. What's he referring to, the Son of Man being lifted up? On the cross, thank you. That the Son of Man is put up on the cross. And what do we have to do? One time in our life, we have to look to Christ and call upon Christ to be the one that would forgive us of the, of the poison of sin in our life. That would kill us, would destroy us otherwise. And how often do we have to do that? Just once, to have salvation. But after that, how often should we if we want to maintain fellowship? Day, on a daily basis. He is still faithful and just and he'll still forgive us. But how many times do we have to ask him to give me eternal life? One time. One time. A lot of us, we ask multiple times because we doubted. Well, we just didn't understand all this truth. Okay, and so we come to that point where we understand and we realize, hey, that what Christ was getting at, this idea of once you pray, you're saved forever, it is abundantly clear throughout multiple passages. One of those that's so simple that a lot of you know it says, for by grace are you saved. Do you remember the rest of this? Yeah, he goes on, he says, salvation is all of grace. Okay, that idea you are saved, it's a perfect passive uh, participle here. All of that means is somebody did this for you. You didn't save yourself. What it means is, well, as well, it was all of grace done by, by you, God for you. And the perfect has the idea, you did it once, and it continues forever and ever. It never stops. Just like that. And I've used this illustration to the point of, of boring you. How many times do you have to say, I do to your spouse to be married to them? One time. On June 10th, 1973. No, that's not right. Whatever year it was that we got married. <laughs> She's not here to bail me out. You better be watching. I'm going to get, ask you at home. Okay. Uh, so when we, when we called upon... Well, it really bothers me. Here was it? 78. It was 78. <laughs> You're all doubting? I know. Um, so we only had to do that one time, and then we're married. And it continues. That one time that we have to be saved, and it continues forever and ever. Now, let me close with this. Okay? If we could lose our salvation... Let, let's take the hypothetical. It's, it's not true. But let's take and adopt what some other churches say. They say that you and I could lose our salvation if we commit a certain sin. Then we got a problem because we still do struggle with sin. Right? And we say, okay, we're not perfect yet. We still struggle. And the Bible makes it very clear what sin do we have to commit to end up going to hell? Any. If we break or if we offend in one point, we're guilty of all of it in the sense that we broke the commandments or we broke the standard. And so the big struggle comes down to, okay, what if I committed some of these things? The things that, he says, those who practice such things deserve to go to hell. Well, okay, I, I haven't murdered. Um, you know, I'm not a hater of God. I'm not an inventor of evil. But some of these others we still might struggle with. Some kids might, who are born again might struggle with disobedience to parents. We might struggle with doing foolish things. We might struggle with envy. So the question comes down to this. If we could lose our salvation, I've got no hope. I conclude that if I can lose my salvation, I'm going to be the most miserable person alive. Because if my salvation can be lost by sinning, what sin 
causes me to lose my salvation. Any sin could do it. So my question is, what line? Where do, when do I cross this line? And for some churches, they say, we don't know. Well, how do I know if I cross the line? What, what attitude would well up within you? Fear. Fear. What happens if I, if, if I did something too much or too far? And how often can I lose it? Because maybe... Maybe it's being angry with, you know, with somebody in your household, losing your temper. And you go home this week, and you lose your temper with the dog. And you say, oh, God, forgive me for losing my temper. And two minutes later, you lose your temper with your kid. Okay? And then you say, oh, forgive me, I didn't mean to lose my temper. An hour later, you lose your temper with your spouse. And then your parents call, and you lose your temper with them. Did you saved, unsaved, saved, unsaved, saved, unsaved, saved, unsaved? Man, that would be a horrible way of living, wouldn't it? I just don't know. So if we can lose our salvation, it tells me that we have to live a sinlessly perfect life. What hope do we have? Okay, or... We're in constant jeopardy of losing our salvation, which I have ministered to multiple groups of people in this area who have been a part of this, this ministry who live in absolute fear of God. They are constantly thinking, He loves me, He loves me not. He loves me, He loves me not. They are afraid to go out of their house. They're afraid to interact for fear of doing what? Sinning, offending, becoming a, you know, doing something in road rage. And so it, it's just, it, it destroys any hope and assurance. So where did we start with this whole thing? These things have it written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God. Why did he write to us? That we may have confidence of what? We have eternal life. That's our hope. That's our hope. Otherwise, we'd live in fear. What if the rapture took place and I'm left behind? What a a horrible existence. And God did not mean for us to have that existence. Do we still struggle? Yes. Yes. But by God's grace, we have that hope and assurance, and we have perseverance in our hearts.